it's a whole different game. It's like when you're directing talent, like you can't just tell it what to do. You have to consider, especially if they're a star, or if they're kind of a big deal, like you have to consider what their limitations are, what what they're going to do versus what they won't do. And it's weird. Are it's, they similar in a sense? Is directing people and directing food similar in a sense? Carrots are just as big a diva as <laughs> any celebrity. Welcome to the catch up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth. Editor in chief. And Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news breaking, food porn peddling, viral website on the dot coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch-up. All right, Jeff. I don't know if you know this. Probably not. But food has been on TV since the earliest days of black and white, and it was on radio. Betty Crocker in the 40s had a cooking show. It was on the radio, and then obviously there's Julia Child, but basically everything in food video form for decades has been non-scripted, it's been reality-based, hosted, and even when the internet came about, we generally haven't even pushed those boundaries much on the internet platform, and food is one of the most popular media, thank God, but for the better part of a century, it's been presented in roughly the same way. True. Okay. It's either hosted by a chef in a kitchen, someone's traveling to eat food, or people competing in a studio. It's all reality-based. That's it. But that's why I'm excited to have food director David Ma on the podcast. Dude is an award-winning director. Congrats. Thank you. Who's actually creating works of fiction around food. He's one of the few dudes actually doing stuff differently in the food game. He's created several fiction-based, storyline-driven food series. One's called Superhands, where fictional characters like Wolverine and Iron Man cook things like steaks and kebabs the way they would if their characters lived in the real world. He has another series called Food Films, and that one imagines if if famous film directors made food in the style of their blockbuster movies, like what if Quentin Tarantino made spaghetti and meatballs and how bloody that shit would look, or (laughs) if Michael Bay toasted waffles with freaking explosions and pyrotechnics everywhere. I think we're at the very beginning of food media having more fictional formats, but for some reason we're not there yet. So he's an auteur in his own right, bringing the flair of fiction and filmmaking to the food game. Dave and Ma, welcome to the catch up. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me in. You like that intro? That was, that was nice. You should. That was the longest. Sorry. Without a doubt, that was the longest intro in catch up history. <laughs> and I was looking at the one sheet like, that's a pretty tight intro. But then hearing it was like, damn, this is a really tight intro. And this isn't even about me. This is about my man David over here. Eli, can you like call my dad and tell him all those things? Bro, tell your dad to tune in on the Twitch stream. <laughs> Anyways, uh, welcome, dude. I know you're not, you're just visiting in LA yeah, right now. Yeah, just visiting. Yeah, I heard you're winning, you won some awards last night. Yeah, we went to uh, the Taste Awards and we picked up uh, best social media video and best short film. Dang, for Congratulations. what? Uh, for food films. For Thanks, food man. films. Yeah, Congrats, for food films. Dude. Yeah. How did you Thanks. even get into film? I know we've known each other for a minute, but I don't, yeah, did yeah. you go to film school? No, I never went to film school. Um, I, I've always, uh, I've actually never really had a, 
I never grew up thinking I was going to work in film or be a cinematographer or a director. I fell into it kind of on accident. It was a super uh, Cinderella story, I guess is how I describe it. <laughs> what, hit me. Hit yeah, me with that Cinderella story. Um, I, was, I was working in advertising at the time, and it was, you know, 60 or 80, 90 hours a week. And I had this one day I woke up and I was like, this is crazy. I'm spending so much time on other people's brands. I'm putting so much thought, like I'm giving ideas away. And I had seen a couple of people on Instagram who had like kind of made jobs out of it. And I thought it was interesting because half of them didn't really have like discernible skills. Like they were just like, <laughs> oh, I can take selfies and stuff. But then the other half, which I was really interested in, were these content creators who were, you know, either they were photographers or they were, you know, they, they did stop motion or they had their own little niche thing. And they were able to make a career out of that because now brands were suddenly coming to them. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go try this thing out. If it doesn't work out, I'll come back to advertising. So I initially went in to be a food stylist and I did a few sets. I was like moving chives. I was spritzing, you know, pancakes <laughs> with motor oil, you know, and I had a great time doing that because it let me kind of learn how sets work. Like I had never stepped on a set before. And so to, and on my third shoot, I saw this director and he was just like running the show. Like he was like, I love the lighting here. And he was working with all the departments and for me, I was just siloed in my own little corner with with my tweezers moving chives. And I was like, I, I want to try something on that level. Like, I want to look at the conceptual part of, of food and, like, the narrative of food. And um, I didn't know the fastest way to get there. Uh, so I talked to my mentor at the time, and he was like, you gotta just got to make something. You got to go make what you want to get paid to do. Hmm. Um, he's like, treat like a startup. Like, you're going to need some, some startup money. You're going to have to invest a little bit. Um, so, and that was how food films was born out of that. And that was my first foray into, I guess directing was first the super hands, but that was my first real big thing. Wait, and, and if we can back up just yeah, a sure, little sure. bit, because one, what was your role in the agencies that you were working at? Sure. And then I know you kind of casually mentioned like you went, became a food stylist, but how did you, how did you, how did you do that? And how did you find the sets to work on? I, I, I want to back up so yeah. people kind of get to know your history. A bit. Sure. Sure. Um, so I was a copywriter. Um, I went to an art school in Georgia. Uh, it was where we learned to make pretend ads. It's called the creative circus. Um, that place taught me everything that I know about thinking about how to understand concept and like what makes a good concept, what's been done before, how to move past like first thought ideas and first thought executions. And uh, when I got to the agencies, I was a copywriter. So I wrote scripts. I wrote the TV scripts that I now direct. Hmm. Um, so I had this angle of coming in of like understanding and reverse engineering how concepts came to be made. And I think that's why I jive so well with like agency people is because I, I used to be one. And I love like taking something from this and then bringing it to the execution stage. And you're kind of removed from all the politics and bullshit of advertising agencies, which was part of the reason why I left advertising. But why food? Food. Oh yeah. So I never was a foodie. Yeah. Um, I never really f messed around with food. I started. Uh, I was spending a lot of money on Seamless in New York. Okay. We didn't have Uber Eats or Postmates back then. Yeah. But uh, I made this. I resolved to like cook one new meal every day, and I just started putting it on my personal Instagram as for fun. And then I started like conceptualizing and thinking around food. So I made this like emoji gingerbread men recipe uh, where I just baked gingerbread men, but then made every face an emoji face. BuzzFeed picked it up. And then the next morning I had like 8,000 followers on Instagram. And this was like crazy, or like in a week, it was crazy. Oh shit. And I was like on the front page of Reddit and I was like, oh, this food thing's interesting. Like I've always fucked around and made side projects. Like 
when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, I made these vibrating stadium cushions that women could like take to the theater with them to sit on <laughs> to like enjoy the movie. And it had like three speeds. We made like like fifty of them. It was like a limited batch, and I got a cease and desist from the from Paramount or DreamWorks, whatever it was, because it got big. Like people were writing about it. I sold out really fast, and I had these housewives from like Minnesota writing me, being like, "I love my Fifty Shades of Grey thing." So, anyways, what I'm saying is like I've always done things. What? So what? Yo, and, brilliant! And they were waterproof. Uh, of, course, <laughs> of course, it's gonna get wet in there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so, wow. so I've always been thinking of weird shit like that, and I wanted to go into food because when I looked at the food industry, I had worked on some food brands like as a copy in the agency world, and I was like, this is so tame. It's crazy. Like. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants the same top-down shot. Everybody wants the same Happy St. Patrick's Day post from Mr. Peanut or whoever it's going to be. Um, and I was bored by that. And I was like, there is an opportunity here. Like, I can bring that level of creativity to food. And suddenly we can make food interesting, funny, weird. We can build worlds around the food so we're not just shooting the food. Like, um, but sorry, I, I missed your question that's, a little bit. No, but, that's yeah. it. That 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 led me. That I just wanted to make sure because a lot of people just inherently we love food. Right? Yeah, yeah. But like to build your whole craft kind of around it. Like you could have gone, you could have been whatever filmmaker you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. There's I noticed that there was a lot of like music video directors and there was a lot of like big budget cinema directors and then you have your narrative docu style people and I I didn't really love the work for it. Like music videos to me seemed like. Uh, there wasn't always concept there. And it was just like, you have to have a real strong visual sense to do that and like be able to work with artists. And I wasn't really sure I wanted to work with people yet as a director. I wanted to like, to work within food and see how we could create food stunts and, you know, make, present food in that different way. So your first, your first four way was those gingerbread cookies. Yeah. That was like the first, first food thing I ever made was like a stills. I made like some cinemagraphs of like painting and stuff Uh like that. It was me and my buddy in New York and then um, when I moved out to LA, I had the idea for Super Hands one night because yeah. um, I was cooking and I was watching some recipe videos and like, it's like, it'd be so funny if like, you know, this guy just like roasted it with like fire with his hands. And I, I called my buddy, he was like a VFX guy. I was like, yo man, do, do you know how to do this? Like, could we do this like cheaply? Um, so I flew out to New York. Um, I had a DP out there named Allison Davis. Mike was my editor and our, our VFX guy, and we ordered a bunch of shit on Amazon because we had no budget. I had like 500 bucks. So I ordered like a plastic Iron Man glove off of Amazon Prime that we could return after. I was at Toys R Us looking at like Hulk smash hands, and I was writing the recipes and thinking like what would lend itself to the powers and like what would make that interesting. And the reason I thought this was worth pursuing was because I thought about hands and pans videos. I was like, what's the one thing we could change? The hands are always just boring. They come in, they go to the right, they swoop, they do this, they mix. But no one really wants to see that stuff. So, like, if Storm used her powers to, like, control the wind and make a cyclone within the bowl, like, that'd be rad. Or Iron Man, instead of cutting a steak with a knife, he pops up his, like, phaser and shoots that down and cuts the thing in half. And we had so much fun on this shoot, and it was so much different than any other recipe video shoot that I've ever done. It was, like, there were plates and there were elements. And uh, a plate is, like, when you shoot something so that you can edit for it later but how much of that was scripted and storyboarded and how much of it was oh, we're on set and we're just iron man would do this i think so let's yeah, do this i didn't even know what a storyboard was at that point Shit, this was okay. like two and a half years ago um so funny and uh i didn't know what a gaffer was like i just thought we need somebody to turn on the camera and i was hand modeling um and yeah we i mean i had written out a shot list 
kind of, I, I really didn't know what I was doing, but we just got in there and somehow in the edit, it all came together. Have you, have you always been a doer? And, and the reason why I asked that is because you very briefly talked about how many people it was going to take to get this production together that you found a DP, you found graphics, you needed to find a location, you needed, you just talked about very briefly writing a recipe and that's a lot. That's a lot for anyone who, especially for someone who's been, who's never done it before. Right. And obviously you were around creatives in your agents where you work, you were around creatives in your school, but is something being self-motivated, is that kind of someone you've always been? I think so. My creative directors would always get mad at me back in advertising world because I'd always be working on side projects the entire time. Um, and it was even the way I got out of school early. Like I graduated from art school early about uh, a year earlier than I was supposed to, to go work at one of the best agencies in the world. And it was because I did a side project with my friend Deanna, who's now a, a comedy writer in LA, but we did this project and um, they recruited me in my third quarter. I left early and I just moved to New York. And ever since then, like the work of advertising always bored me. So it was a way to keep, keep quick and to keep thinking interestingly, because the stuff I was writing was just garbage. It was so boring. It was like, the stuff that brands want, you know, it's like the the stuff that is just to pay the bills and not really to win awards and be creative. Do you remember how we met? Yes. So I do. All I remember, and I want to recount this a little bit, yeah. is because Superhands became like a phenomenon online. And I yeah. think you pitched, like, can you cover this, guys? Like, look the work I already did. Like, yeah. it's just recipe videos. And the, I think it got pitched to one of our writers, Izzy. Shout yep. out producer Izzy. Yep. Um, but when we saw them, when I saw these videos, they were magical. Thanks, man. Because you talked about people were kind of, <clears throat> maybe were getting malaised about those recipe videos that you see online that, you know, the code to crack Facebook was you do a Facebook recipe video, it's shot from the top down, mm -hmm. very clear, you see the two hands, doesn't matter who the hands are, maybe you don't like that personality, so you're just seeing hands, the recipes all seem easy, but those worked. like. Those were viewed by millions and millions of people. They grew our page, you know? We have You can't deny the utility. Sure. Utility is absolutely first and foremost with recipe videos. But at some point, like, you get tired of seeing those things and it becomes formulaic. And it's like, how can we give little things in there that don't crazy up the production? Because the magic of those things is you can crank out a ton of them. Mm. They're economical for the for for you guys as editors and for brands. And you can it takes away the one thing, which was so smart, which people didn't like someone's voice. People didn't like the way someone looks as a personality, as a chef. And also it condensed it down to one minute before it was, you had to watch a 30 minute cooking show to watch a chicken get roasted. Right. And it, while Julie Child's lovely, yeah. <laughs> no one has time for that, right? So yeah, in this era, we don't have time. We need our recipe yeah. video in a minute. Right. We don't have time. We have 60 minutes to do it. So what happened next? Did you try to pitch Izzy? What's the story? I, I don't know if don't you know. guys found me or if I emailed you, I'm not sure. But you guys, you guys wrote a flattering article and I was just, I was like, I want to work for these guys. So immediately, I think I called Mark up and mm -hmm. I was like, hey, can I come in and just have lunch with you? And um, I think I got your name wrong. I didn't say Eli. I said yeah. something like oh, Edward yeah. or something, <laughs> <laughs> but you're not an Edward. Um, but I came in and I think that's when we pitched, I pitched you Jeff's table, right? We, we so we met at the 4th Street Market down yeah. the street at a restaurant, right? Yeah. And it was me, I think Jeff was there. I was there and I definitely had no real context for what we were doing. <laughs> it was just, Mark was like, this is the guy, we covered this on editorial. I was like, oh cool, filmmaker out of town, 
let's meet like let's have lunch that, yeah. that was definitely the context that <clears throat> i had and i remember sitting down at that table you put your backpack down you bring out your laptop <laughs> and you just start pitching <laughs> and i was like impressed <laughs> mainly impressed because i pitch pretty practically every single day of my life for sure, food beast sure. and so it's it's a big part of what i do here but the the immediacy but the fact that you had prepared for that moment was honestly the even the most impressive part because you knew our brand you knew who we were talking to and we had never met before and then out of we never get Okay, well, Eli, you could talk about this. Well, so we this, get pitched all the time. Pitch like, all we the get time. pitched food shows and ideas all the time, which I'm flattered. I love. Keep pitching it. But again, they're all the same shit that I talked about earlier, right? At the end of the day, it's usually, well, this guy's funny, so have him travel and eat food. Or this girl cooks great pasta. Like, she should have a show. Those are the level of pitches we get. This was the first time that someone comes and pitches us a show and has storyboards. He has characters. I was like, dude, I went to film school. Like, I'm geeking out here. Like, this is beautiful. Oh, I never knew that about you. Yeah, I, I, went, yeah. I went to film oh, school. Shit. Um, so, and I've, I've been wanting and I've been thirsting for it. And one of the ideas was this concept called Jeff's Table, where it was a, you knew who the character, you don't see the person. So, you knew the sensibility of the current Facebook video culture. Like, we don't need to see anybody. Your new chef's table was this massive, pretentious show on Netflix about food and how intricate it is and complex it is. And your new food beast. You know, food beast loves to cover the gamut of it. We like to have fun. What would be the perfect melding of those two? Let's create a fictional dude named Jeff. And we're going to find out what's on his table. And what's on that table? Fruit Loops. What's on that table? Grilled cheese. What's on that table? Cup noodles. That's it. <laughs> what requires one step to create, and that is what's going to be on Jeff's table. And leaving that meeting, I was like, dude, we're foobies. We don't have a shit ton of money, but whatever we can give just to make sure we do something together. <laughs> and that's why I appreciate you even dealing with you know how little we gave you, but you knew that you would have our full support in pushing it out to the world. We made that $10 work hard. We did. Yo, yo $9.50. I appreciate you really making it, um, making it stretch. But yeah, man. And that concept really, really went far. It was awesome. It was awesome. We sold it for some brand stuff in the yeah. second yeah. season. I mean, what, what I was really excited about that one was because I didn't want to take that to like a BuzzFeed or to a taste made. You guys were the perfect partner. Um, it was about celebrating like those common foods and taking a little bit of the the piss out of, you know, this over the top, unrelatable show. I mean, look, I I I was so inspired by Chef's Table, sure. and I think at some point though it kind of became maybe it was in the second season where the narratives weren't as relatable, and the food was something where, I, I if you ask seventy five percent of people, they they probably won't eat in a Michelin star restaurant in their life. That's just not way more than way way more than that. They don't know what a moose. I don't even know how to say it. A moose bush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just think it's a funny word. But like, <laughs> sounds funny. Yeah, it sounds funny. Yeah. Mise en place. <laughs> good about Mise en place is actually kind of more a film term that got oh, co-opted. But I mean, it's the idea of framing something, right? right? So everything in frame. So mise en place, a lot of chefs use when you're plating your table and everything is the mise en place, whether you're stroking your 
uh, sauce on the bottom of a mm. plate and then plating something on top. So mise en place. So that's what kind of bummed me out is there's so much correlation between food creation and yeah. film creation. Yeah. So, and, and we'll, we're going to talk about other people that do food as fiction and food yeah. kind of in, in the arena that you're working in. Um, but that's how that's how we met. That's yeah. how we and that's how we met. And again, not only do we never get storyboards, it's always the offhand comment of Jeff Eli, you gotta do this. Listen to me. It's a million dollar idea. You gotta do it. Um, but you know, having the storyboards, being prepared, and even understanding the the layers of digital publishers of who does what and why. Again, no one kind of can't, had ever come to us and brought us that context which we were aware of but to have you aware of those things like the difference between buzzfeed versus tastemade versus food beast when the average person will see a video and just think all of the above uh i remember really standing out to us and i remember when we were when we were producing jeff's table again if you haven't seen it search jeff's table on google on youtube it's fun when we realized that the music of chef's table was really old and because it was really old we could, we could public actually domain. public domain we could actually use it in our series <laughs> i just remember oh literally jumping because i knew that our our parody of it was actually going to connect because that way we could have that same intro music in the same vein as the netflix show so uh, hey hearing those vivaldi strings as <laughs> jeff says Fruit Loops or the Manchild's Gazpacho is it really sets 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 it up for you. It's food geekiness at its absolute best. But even even with that, I mean, how do you how do you feel about you have this great concept and you I'm sure you have a ton of other ones. And you look at just everyone in media. You look at Food Network, Food Beast, Taste Made, all that. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if there's no home for it. You look at Food Network, there's 24 hours. They have Food Network, Food Network 2, blah, 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 blah. There's not a single oh, fiction man, you're show. rich. You have all the cable channels. <laughs> <laughs> Linear cable, guys. Let's get it. Like, how hard is it pitching these ideas that no one is picking up before, obviously, like we do it and you're, you're successful from it. But the idea that there, there's nothing like it on TV right now. Food Network has had years and years and years of programming and there's just nothing like this. Does, did that worry you? Did that just show an opportunity? The, the, definitely the opportunity thing. And um, I think this just goes back to the agency stuff is like we're always looking to do things that are that have I mean, it sounds cliche, but haven't been done or t- kind of turned things on their head. And when I looked at the food industry, it was like like we were talking about earlier, it's personality driven. Mm. It's or it's utility where mm. there's no personality, there's no heart, there's no emotion. And then you've got chef's table, which is high on emotion, high on narrative, high on polish and value, but it's unrelatable to the average person. So it's kind of like taking, looking at like what makes those things great, pulling those elements out and then creating something out of those things, like taking A and B. It's like people love movies, people love food. We'll put those things together and there's food films. And the whole goal is to create stuff that doesn't apply to food. It doesn't appeal to foodies. And that's been like my filter for everything is like, would my homie who doesn't even give a shit about my mozzarella sticks that I just posted on it, like never engages with my page, is he going to like this video? And will he share it with his friends? Cause it's fucking funny and it's relatable, even though he's not in the, in, an influencer or a foodie as you would call it, I guess. 
Do you feel like you've just cracked the surface in relation to the creativity that you can have with food, the narratives that you can have with food? Or do you feel like it's still pretty limiting? The reason why I ask is because I, it's really hard for me to see uh, narrative food films be super prevalent. And that's not because I don't want them to be. I don't know if they have the audience power. I don't know if people are going to be looking for them outside of social media. I don't know if it fits the quote unquote formats that we're used to, like the 22 minute or the whatever 48 minute shows that we need. I'm curious about what you think of like the future of food narrative and what you're building. And is there a big enough community to push it forward? I don't know. I, um, it's and I when I say I don't know, it's more just like it's not my world uh, as far as like knowing what things get bought or what things don't. I know that I've I've had a few conversations with the Food Network and with Scripps, their production company, and I've done a few digital things for them. But um, TV is something that doesn't scare me for food. It's just something that what you described, what you were saying at that beginning of that, is every network executive is if we take on this online personality, right? Like. There's no guarantee. Like they're coming in with a built-in audience. Um, they have a. They're not annoying on camera. They're a pretty face or whatever it is. But I think that's the same struggle everybody's going through. Is like, does this translate to TV? And how I've kind of concerned myself is I'm not worrying about how my stuff translates to TV. I'm just trying to engage the audience online. And I know how to create stuff for online. Like I know how when things are too long. I know that like you know all the stuff that we've talked about, which is like we need to grab people in the first five seconds. Now it's the first two seconds, and now it's your frame has to be amazing. I mean, grab someone and then, I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of parameters that go into it. And sometimes it's hard because you want to start with a shot that makes sense for the narrative, but you know, you've got to start with that spinning strawberry chocolate shot or else you're not going to have anybody past five seconds. And that's, I mean, that's the, the battle we live in. But now I'm trying to imagine if that's how hard it is to make video online, then what's the next level of like, are there good food films out there? The ones that come to mind that we probably have seen is like Chef. Yeah. Chef is a narrative about food. That was the taco truck or yeah, the, the, the yeah. Miami truck with yeah. uh, John Favreau. Exactly. And, uh, Directed yeah. by John Favreau. Great yeah. movie. Yep. But and very well received critically. Mm-hmm. I looked up the budget and then the box office for it. Like the box office success of that movie was like forty six million dollars, which. It's not no, a lot. It's no Aquaman. No, not at all. And then burnt, which I didn't see. So I can't really talk. I about saw it that much. one. How was it? Um, I don't know, like as a film, it wasn't great, but I liked it cause I was into food and I'm a Bradley Cooper fan. Mm-hmm. I think most people are probably that made even less. That was $36.6 oh, million. Then there's like something like Ratatouille, which again, love Ratatouille, loved Ratatouille as well. That one, uh, $620 million. So obviously it's Disney. Did it's you ever Pixar. see Julia and Julia? It was oh, the story of Meryl Streep. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, didn't see it, but. I didn't see it either, but I listened to a podcast with the food stylist who was on that shoot. And it was really awesome to hear. Just like, because there were so many food prep scenes in that thing. And she was on point like every day working with them for like four months of shooting in Italy. Mm. It's incredible. And then same thing with Burnt, like Bradley Cooper, like they made recipes out of because they used sous vide in that. And that was like a big thing was they were giving light to sous vide. So the sous vide company like had a partnership with them and um there's i don't know it's just like they made big things out of stuff that's very familiar to us but to the rest of the world may not be that normal yeah i guess this conversation is sparking something in my mind that i just wanted to go on for a little bit is because 
for anyone who's in food media and anyone who's been watching the Instagram generation uh, continue to evolve is that food in certain conversations is an element of pop culture that definitely can't be ignored anymore, right? We, I think the way chefs became kind of their own quote unquote rock stars. And you'll hear that like a lot from different media people, the rise in food media in the sense of is, was taste made a company before five years ago? No. Was food beast prominent before eight years ago? No. And so the, the rise of all these food media companies, because it is a more prevalent part of pop culture but this conversation makes it spark like does food actually still have a ways to go uh, because I've all and again I'm so in the depths of food media that mm-hmm. I think of it as equal as music or fashion or celebrity because I want it to be right but at the same time when I look at what's being provided from a media standpoint again on the traditional formats like television and movies there are only certain instances where food might be part of the subject matter, if not wholly part of the subject matter. And I've never thought about it as food having one more half step to go. But David, why I'm excited that you're here is because the only way I think it's going to achieve that step is if there are interesting narratives to be talked about and they aren't going to be recipe videos. Right. I really Not don't food, think yeah. so. Again, recipe videos will have a utility. We do them all the time. They're interesting. And a lot of people watch them on social media for entertainment. You guys but, a lot. Like, I think you're glossing over how, like, there's music. If we're talking just digital, there's music. Mm-hmm. There's gaming right now. There's sports. And there's food. Like, those are huge. You look at, like, the top ten most viewed pieces of content oh yeah across facebook youtube it's it's food it's gaming and it's sports and then there's like t-series so there's music stuff that's just coming but now there are sport narratives Mm -hmm. right there's there's good sport films now there's good music films there's no gaming films just yet that'll come I think they're going to come up with a, like, how do we build narrative around that and this weird subculture that like is like World gaming. of Work. Oh, like. Oh, yeah. World oh, of Warcraft. Oh, actually, yeah. Is, take it back. Shit. Yeah. There's World. I mean, there's tried to be crossovers, Super yeah. Mario movie and so forth. Oh, that was a great one from the <laughs> 90s. Yeah, oh, my God. A movie. A great Whoa. one or a bad one, depending on who you talk yeah. to. Yeah. Tomb Raider. Okay. So there is a lot of gaming crossover. Right. And I think. Food is still. It needs that crossover. It needs that crossover properly. So mm-hmm. we see there are good elements. There, there's good stuff on on the internet that's close. Mm-hmm. Epic Mealtime is a great example of. It started as a recipe show, yeah, but they had these characters on it, yeah, and then you could feel them starting to script stuff, and you didn't hate it. You didn't hate that they yeah. were scripting. They had this character called Muscles Glasses, <laughs> and he doesn't speak, but he's like this big buff dude, and it, amazing. And then Harley, the the host, is this mean but not dude who screams at the camera and you didn't really see that before in food right it's the loudest person before him was like emerald lagasse who would scream and yell bam right here's harley who kind of is like hip-hop it's almost a character that you can't unshake like he's that off camera but but you get it styled up a little bit he has this dude who eats the food with the fork and knife like while well, everyone else is eating it with their hands. So they built these characters. Funny. They would go to the store with this epic music and they would build these recipes as if it was like this fun, 
docudrama. Right. So I thought they did they did a good they moved things yeah. forward. Yeah. Um Feast of Fiction is a cool show that covers fictional food on YouTube. So they'll take something like a reptar bar from Rugrats back in the day. That's amazing. And the two hosts are really awesome. It's Jimmy Wong, who's an actor, great actor, and Ashley Adams, who's a great host. And then every week they just try to create fictional items. Now the show is still like a hosted cooking show. So I don't think they What's it pre- called? It's called Feast of Fiction. Great YouTube channel. It reminds me of um that guy. Have you heard of Binging with Babish? Yeah. So his production quality has like light years from when I first started watching his stuff. And he was the first one to do like a ratatouille from Ratatouille. He did like um the Simpsons Flaming Mo, showed you how to make that, mm. or you know, whatever it is. But um I loved his stuff because it looked good. Um, but there's things I would have done differently, but it was a, such a novel concept to do that. And it sounds like that's kind of in the same genre as the f- piece of fiction. Yeah. yeah. And I th- what I find fascinating is can there be a show that is narrative driven and it's food related, but the episodes connect like they need each other. Mm-hmm. Like what is the legacy TV version? What's the Sopranos version of a food show? <laughs> Because Sopranos fundamentally changed TV. It changed everything mm-hmm. about it. You didn't have to do the normal things. You could chop someone's hand off. You could have a main character who's a bad guy, which did not exist in that capacity before because every other network was handcuffed by advertisers, where HBO is not necessarily paid by advertisers. Yep. They're not at all. Yep. You subscribe. So that allowed... Sopranos to live on as a show that was so fundamentally different. What is that for food? Could that, is there anything like that? Could there be a, even if it is, I don't care if it's a cooking show, but could there be fiction elements of it? Could the creation of an episode one of whatever show we're going to workshop right now, could it be the dude learns how to use a knife and in the process he chops his finger off and then he chops his right arm off because he's real klutz and now he's a one-armed cooking chef who then in the next episode has to do something else but you've established that he has one arm and right. the origin story and it continues episode. and there's and a bit continues. of a narr- like a there's empathy built for him and sure. you kind of like invest in him over the time yeah. yeah how come how come nothing like that exists well there's a there's a movie that came out in the late 1980s and early 1990s with tony shalhoub and it was called big night and it's a it's it's a cult classic for anyone interested in food media at all why i'm bringing it up is because until you guys ask like what the future is i don't know what the future is really because i just don't but when you when we talked about chef very briefly there was a narrative narrative that surrounded a person like you cared because you cared about the character in that film Mm -hmm. and same thing big night surrounds these two brothers one of them being tony shalhoub they're from italy they're in the United States and they're building a restaurant because that's the only thing they know how to do. The one of the brothers only knows how to be friendly with people Mm -hmm. and the other brother only knows how to cook and you're watching them struggle to build a restaurant in a place where no one actually understands 
the region of Italian cuisine that they're bringing. So like the restaurant across the street who kills it nightlife, who kills it revenue, kills it with customers, is this spaghetti meatball bland ketchup sauce that's just slaying in this town. And they're trying to bring like a coastal cuisine to people and explain it. And people are like, where's my meatball? I don't know what the future will be like, but if there are more films like Chef and Big Night that can incorporate the elements of storytelling that that David, you've really innovated on or that we've been a part of with Food Beast and some of our longer format shows like Chomping Grounds or Taste the Details. Mm. If there's elements of that, but then you still really care about someone, mm. I would love to see more of that, to be honest. And I would also love it not to be docu-style because as much as like watching the reality of two Italian brothers create a restaurant. I think there's a place for that. I would rather see a fictionalized version dramatizing it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just me though. I love, I'm a, I'm a movie buff. I'm a TV buff. That's right. the media that I, when I go home, like I don't, I don't put on top chef. I get enough yeah. food media. <laughs> That's my your damn day. day. Yeah. So yeah. I want to go home. But if there was a show surrounding like, an upstart restaurant that was a front to uh, the mob or whatever. Right. I mean, we're writing it right now. It's beautiful. That, I mean, I would I would watch and I'd be super captivated by if they were telling moments around food and it wasn't just people around a table. David, like, you hit it earlier too about why you wanted the motivation for you creating certain food content was not to appease foodies who are already gonna just watch your shit because there's a burger in it. Right. Or, right. right. Like. You're trying to access the people that are going to watch Marvel movies, that are trying exactly. to watch whatever that's winning awards at food fe- at food fest film festivals every fucking where. Sorry, all I can think about is food. I'm so <laughs> hungry, y'all. But that's what that's what you're hitting on too, Jeff. Is like people are still interested in narrative, and that's how we can get people to enjoy food on the geeky ass level that we're on. Let's trick them. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess. But seriously, no, it's real. Like you you wrote people in, you know, you, you, whether it's through a character, whether it's through a different setup than they're typically used to seeing. I mean, the, the goal is to make stuff that like transcends food and gets written about by mashable, not just by taste made. Right. You know, like that's, that's kind of how I gauge the success of a project and whether I want to pursue a second season of it is like, was this just talked about by like my Instagram foodie friends or what? And like. Food Beast and Tastemate, or was it like New York Times cover this? Like, what, were there people writing on this being like, I don't even like food. This is fucking rad. Like, and that's that's kind of the goal that, to have with that stuff. And my first creative director told me, um, like with Super Hands, he's like, when you take, when you focus to niche audiences who are like maybe smaller and not appealing to the mass thing, they're that much more loyal as a group. Like if you appeal to like cosplayers, that group is more active on social media than if you put in like the hashtag like food porn, you know, because they're, they're just they're more engaged, they're more invested. And when you put that and you take another subsect category, what, so that's food or whatever, you put those things together, suddenly you've created a genre where you have very impassioned targets, like championing your stuff, sharing your stuff, engaging with them. We all know because of algorithms and things, that's what ripples it out to the Internet. But it's always a crapshoot. You're like, I hope that these two kind of go together. They don't seem to, but that's probably a good thing. And we can get there by the end of it. Is Sopranos a food show 
wrapped around mobsters. That pasta looked good. It's literally just Tony Soprano eating pasta every episode. And then he goes to a meat shop where he has his meetings <laughs> where you see a bunch of cold cuts. That's a good way in. Anyway, I just love That's a nice way in. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely something there. Because even when you think about some of the more iconic scenes of like Game of Thrones, for example, mm-hmm. there are a lot of very specific food scenes that like tie into the narrative. So, I mean, not to go super spoiler alert on Game of Thrones, but if you're like not caught up on season four, and, and I won't go into too much detail, but there there are elements where like chopping someone's body part off was transitioned in into a, a food scene. And I think that, that was like really interesting ways to incorporate from one scene to a next that had a connective tie. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm seeing food and maybe that's through the lens that I see it, but I do think objectively that I'm seeing food in genres in ways that would, would have never been second guessed. Like if you're creating a sitcom, the food on the table was specifically not to be eaten versus now I think there's, you can capture more real life elements by presenting it a bit more accurately. They've been trying to do new things in food. I think it's just not narrative. Like the Chew is a food talk show. Right. Like I don't really follow along with it because, again, it's just more of like talking about food. It's the catch up. Good for you guys. But I was do you like what do you like in food right now? Mm. That's not narrative driven or the boundary pushing things that we're doing right now. Um. Or they are the boundary pushing things. And what do you want to fix? Like, what's next? Everyone's trying to crack what the next recipe video is. Mm. I'm not concerned about that. Trying to do that. Um, I want to like. I want to move outside of utility. Uh, I still do them. Um, we just did one for I can't believe it's not butter recently, and it was a, it was a great time. Like we were getting more cinematic shots and things. But I think recipe videos are what they are, and like we kind of need to leave them at that. Um, maybe there's an evolution of it, but, um, but it's not necessarily something you want to lead. I I don't necessarily want to lead it because it's not like, I'm not excited by thinking about the prospect of recipe videos. Like when I get that, I'm like, okay, we're, we're doing it Mm -hmm. and we'll, I'll try to interject some flair and personality here and there, but brands are pretty set in what they want as far as when they, when they ask for a recipe video, I watch things like I, I went to David Chang's restaurant uh, major domo in downtown for the netflix opening of um of uh his show yeah. um ugly delicious ugly delicious yeah and that one was fun like i liked listening to him like rant about stuff because you know that's his that's his thing right yeah. and it was interesting to see people crowd around a table and talk about food and what it meant to them but at the same time it just fell back into that land of docu docu and it's and i loved uh, i started ugly delicious really grew on me it's yeah. the show where he kind of tackles a cuisine every every episode yeah so the first one that's like pizza yep and so the way it's shot is really nice and i love that he eats dominoes he's like yeah dominoes fucking great and i don't yeah. know if that was a ad thing or whatever but i think he was just being straight up like i eat dominoes yeah and that's how i am like i eat i had mcdonald's last night like it was great yeah and he, he it's situational yeah. so it was more situational than most docus are mm-hmm. but it's still again fell right back into that and i don't know what we were expecting it's not like he was hired on by netflix to not create a docu style show that had eight episodes that tackled issues it he wasn't signed on to basically write a script yeah where i think someone like david chang uh bourdain god rest his soul like Mm -hmm. he they those dudes those are authors that could have 
created those fictions for us. Mm-hmm. I think Bourdain did write a fiction-based book about a chef that, I don't know. It, it's a yeah, fiction. Okay. Ba- he wrote fiction as well. So This was separate from Kitchen Confidential, his correct, like bio. Correct, bio yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah right. very different. Gotcha. Um, so I think it, it's going to take... It's going to take writers who create new stories and worlds around this. It's going to take the opening of a restaurant that gets fictionalized for us to find anything new. Because, yeah, it's not going to come of a recipe video. Right. Um, so I wonder, do you, so you are kind of, I wouldn't say malaise, but I was talking about this with Jeff is the idea of watching like Superhands. Mm-hmm. When we first saw Superhands, brilliant. Would you do super hands? Like, would you do 30 more episodes, like one minute vignettes? Totally would. Yeah, because like, sure. if we have that that angle and that spin on things, like that's awesome. Like, yeah. I have so much fun like planning out, because we had this trick where like the glove came off and we are like, we can't make it, like, or we, we can't make the glove him summon it. So we just put it on fishing wire, we pulled it off and then just reversed the footage. And that's like one of those things that just looks magical, but... It was very simple to achieve. Yeah. And I love figuring that stuff out with my team. And I, I'm i extremely lucky to have a group of crew uh, crew around me that just knows their shit. Yeah. And I give them an overarching concept. I'm like, we need to make um, spice jars explode in succession and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they just go spend a week and figure it out. Let's talk about some of those food films. because For like, sure, man. For the, for the geeks out there that are like interested in production and stuff. Yeah. I know I am, so I don't even care if anyone <laughs> cares about that shit. This is for me. <laughs> but like, again, even in, in, in Superhands, the idea is most of that stuff is practical until you're doing lasers and shit. Until we're doing lasers, yeah. So like, Couldn't afford that. What's some like interesting on-set shit that you had to figure out that people were like, damn, he probably just did that in post, but really he did that in person. Yeah, so I think one of the first things I made clear to the crew, which was six people, by the way, which was insane. We shot it over three 15-hour days in in the summer, and um, they were all friends of mine who I was not paying. And um, I mean, we we spent money on cameras and stuff, but we spent about 24, or I spent 24K on the first season. So that was my investment in food films. And That's I said to myself, investment. like, That's if this is investment. not going to work out, if this doesn't work out, I'm going back to advertising. If food films flops, that's it. I'm going to go back. Um, and uh, the opposite happened. And I found representation and I found jobs out of it. But when it came, sorry, so going back to what I said originally, um, when I first brought my friends and I was like, everything has to be practical. We can clean things up in post. But as a food director, I need to communicate. Because at the end of the day, I'm not just going to make a bunch of films for fun. Like I had a business objective in mind, which was do food differently, but execute it well and execute everything practically. And then that way you can say in your interviews, if it does take off that, you know, I'm all about shooting food real, but creating these worlds around it. And I had a narrative in my head of like how I wanted this thing to play out. And the way it was perceived in the press was almost uh, pretty close to what I had wanted it to be, Um, like how it was perceived and liked and, and all that stuff. And um, there were crazy things that happened. Like we had to make for the Tarantino shot where we have a tomato that gets decapitated and suddenly the stream of blood just shoots into the air. I'll How'd kill you do Bill. that? How'd you do that? Um, I worked with a very talented guy named Brian Hames. He's a rigs de- builder, um, props master basically is the, the title on set. We met on a Ritz production, um, a year Ritz, ago. Ritz crackers. Ritz crackers. Yeah. It was my first like national TV spot was Ritz crackers. And we met on this thing cause we had, I needed to make bumblebees fly in stop motion. And this guy was like, he's the guy you call. 
And so I got his number after I'm like, let's, let's talk. And, um, he ran a plastic tube through the bottom of the table that went up into the tomato. The tomato was not cut at this point. He just eyed it. And then I came in with the knife to slice it. And at the right moment, he would hit the trigger that would, he basically had one of those weed, um, uh, like, like garden hose? garden hose sprayers, like that you have for like Miracle Grow, and he, we filled it with V8, a mixture of V8 and like some red food dye, and then we did two takes of it because I missed the first take. It was three in the morning at this point. The hand model who we were supposed to have was a little bit nervous about wielding a giant knife at three in the morning, so I was like, I'll do it. So we're sitting there at two thirty in the morning. My hands are on the table, and she's painting my nails. We're talking about shit. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna jump in and do it. I cut it. We did it three times, and the third take actually did it right. And so you would slice that tomato. Yeah, it's and I would to get look covered. Like a, a oh decapitation. yeah, decapitation. Right. So the thing lifts off, and then this fountain of blood just sprays up. And the first time, the the tube wasn't up high enough to my cut point, so it didn't spray up. It just got jammed up. Second time, we cut it, and I sliced the tube off because the knife was mad sharp. It was like a Japanese knife. Third knife, we or third swipe, we hit our stride, and then we hit that. I mean, but we're all crazy shit, like. We had to make pancakes float for gravity for Alfonso Caro. How did you do that shit? Yeah, that that one, yo, incredible. That's, and also because I rewatched pretty much all of your food films before you jumped on, I'm literally sitting here. It, it's so captivating. I mean, Thanks, I man. literally had never seen anything like it in the space, and I don't think I really will. So again, I just want to mention, look up these films, guys, because it's something where I've seen them and I've seen them multiple times. And as I was rewatching them, again, the gravity one, particularly when you're seeing flour and butter and egg kind of like float in this dark world it was mad funny dude when it's like upside down because you're like in space (laughs) the 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 mix is like floating upwards into the pan i just laughed out loud at that point like i know uh, it's just incredible so So that that move was just rotating the thing in post our, our, our footage in post but you know with the syrup shot where it's kind of like bubbling up to the sky or sideways right where it's kind of feels like it's weightless we actually took a speaker that we ordered on Amazon. This is the only thing I didn't return to Amazon, but at the end of the shoot, we ripped the lining out. We filled the inner thing with like motor oil or syrup or something. And then we played dubstep, like just crank dubstep in this fucking studio. And then the the vibrations from the speaker just shot the syrup up, but we're shooting at 2000 frames per second. So sorry guys, when you're, when we're shooting slow motion, 2000 frames per second, everything almost looks like it's weightlessness. It's almost like it's suspended in time. And that's what we needed for this job because we couldn't hang things from fishing wire. They were there, but they're pliable pancakes. So Brian, our engineer built a trampoline and we put the, the pancakes on it, let them fly. And then we just used about half a second of footage for our final cut. That was just that moment where they were kind of stuck between gravity and just floating and then we had a we were lucky enough to have five or six of those moments out of f- six hours of shooting and that's all we had because it was such a crap shoot i mean we were covered in syrup i had tomato <laughs> juice all over me it was nuts um do you ever have do you ever have to make decisions with your crew with your equipment when it comes to yo man i have five g's for this video i either get this camera that shoots 2,000 frames per second, or I figure out fishing wires to get that floating shot. Like, cause 
There's yeah. two ways. There's multiple ways to do stuff. And as a director and a problem solver, you have to decide sometimes between. Sometimes it's on the fly. Something something that we tested doesn't work on set. Mm-hmm. And that person who is now responsible for that rig is getting very frustrated. And everyone's working in a hot studio under all these hot lights. Like tensions get rough. And half my job on set as a director is just to manage personalities. Um, I'm there to ensure that the final product looks cohesive to what we set out for myself, if I'm the client or for the client. But it's managing a lot of people and a lot of egos and getting them all to feel equally invested so that they can make it their own. Like if I'm going to give the gaffer full license and liberty to work on the lighting to make it look the way I want it to, like he needs to feel like it's his and that he can own it or else he's just there for a paycheck. And I don't ever want people on my sets who are just there to make their money. Like if it's for a personal project, I mean, like we're, we're there, we're putting in weeks of production, pre pre production. And I'm very fortunate to have people who like on this last job for the food films inception one, um, Melissa Stammer, my art director worked for about a month pre pro and charged me for two days on set. That was, and that was our agreement. And she just, um, just did it because she believes in the concept and believes in the power of that. And then that's like, those are the people that I've been really lucky to surround myself with. Because they make my shit look really fucking good. Um, and it would not be able to be pulled off without those those people. I remember we worked on another project. We worked on a few projects together, yeah. which is, I'm very fortunate. We did this cookbook that matches up with uh, something like eight recipe videos, right? And, of course, we're like, we didn't want these recipes to look normal. So who do we hit up? We hit up the boy Dave Amon. <laughs> and so this was for a hot sauce brand, really delicious hot sauce brand called Tabanero. And the move was we wanted to make these sultry, sexy recipe videos. Based but, on the, the what was called the Taba Sutra, an illusion of the Kama Sutra. Mm-hmm. So like every video had a specific hot sauce position. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember some of these. <laughs> I can't remember all of the names, but like just like the sheer, the sheer amount. Like one of them was a person. The ghost behind, yeah, the ghost behind another person, all four hands on oh, the yeah. bottle, and oh, it yeah. was real sexual. So, at the end of the day, the videos looked amazing, right? <laughs> and they they did what we all set out to achieve. But I think it was you guys rented this house to do everything in, yeah. shut off all the lights outside, and I remember showing up either day one or day two of the mm-hmm. set, and. I'm used to the recipe videos we do here in the office where like you crank out three or four in a day and there's two cameras shot, right? There's like one hanging above, one hanging from the side. But I show up. Imagine it's day two. I show up to this set. It's like 20 people. Everyone looking at a skillet with butter. And you guys were working on a butter shot. Like you wanted the butter to look so specific. I made I made us do that like ten times. I think there were hours of shooting a single slice of butter hitting a pan. I'm like, this is that set. This is that set right now. But you needed that butter. You're like we're using this butter shot, and it's gonna go to all the videos. So we oh, need that's this. Right. That's right. Yeah. And so there's a reason why we're spending this time. But to carry through. There has to be such a level of trust on a set to know, like, guys, it's cool that we're filming this for three hours. This butter shot we need um, was just insane. Like, the level that goes into that. And I don't think a lot of people are ready for that level of intricacy and auteurship around right. a food video. It's it's really baby steps. And uh, just recently, you know, um, I was on a shoot where I was like, I'm going to cut the pan in half. or We're just going to slice it in half. 
like what whoa, whoa, whoa we don't have the budget for that like we, we can't do that I'm like it's fine we just get a power washer we'll get a <laughs> do with the power washer slice that thing in half it's gonna let us get really close up to the to the camera because all right sorry to the food in the pan because every every pan shot is shot this way over, overhead or at a three-quarter angle and here suddenly we were pushing right into it with plexiglass and it gave the client this like beautiful vision of their fish fillet and then they had like the like the butter just melting all across it and it was like we never seen that perspective before and i put it up on instagram and we got 300,000 views on the actual bts video which was just a split screen of the top footage being what i shot in camera the bottom being like someone on my i had my iphone out and i just took like video of of the whole setup Sure. And there's the spot that we actually ended up doing for it got 3,000 views. How does that make so, you feel sometimes? I, I love it. I think that <laughs> I love that people, they, that's what I'm saying is that content doesn't need to just be what we output for the final. It's like there's so much wonder and fascination on how we pull this shit off. Yeah. And then the intricacies of, you know, we're slicing pans in half. We're, we're attaching blenders to, to, to Lazy Susans and turntables. And we're, we're just doing weird shit with stuff. Um, and and that's like that's what also keeps people coming back to my sets also i think is they know it's not going to be a tabletop shoot like they're coming out we're going to have a fucking great time and we're going to spend days trying to figure out how to make a strawberry spin without a without a string you mentioned like one of your pre-production gals took a month pre-producing one of yeah. your shoots for food films specifically yeah. what's the timeline from inception of the idea to releasing it online uh so with that one i thought of the idea at 3 in the morning on, when I was in LA and I called my team because it was 6 a.m. their time in New York and I was like guys I have this fucking crazy idea like it's gonna be recipe videos but we're gonna do them like beautifully with with in the style of directors and I call us back in three hours <laughs> so then I, I just wrote a mass text to like my my four core people my a team and I just it was paragraphs and paragraphs and I just kept running and that was how I knew I was like we got to do this I can't stop talking about it and I did. I always do research. I always look out to see if there's other things that have been done like that because I never want to do shit that's been done before or like doesn't can't do it better in a better way or a different way. And uh, I flew out to New York about a week later, and I lived at Melissa's apartment in New York, and we spent about four weeks going to IKEA looking for things. And on the night before, two nights before the Wes Anderson shoot, we had just bought Pink Seamless for the backdrop. I was like, we can't do this. People are going to give us so much shit. Like, he would never have seamless. Like, we need to get, we need to build a set. So we went to Ikea at, like, 11 o'clock at night, bought this, like, cabinet thing. We ordered 200 pink cake boxes off of Uline. We ordered ribbon. And we stayed up the whole night before we shot, tying and building boxes and building this intricate set. And what you see on screen is a three-foot-by-three-foot Part of it little shelf but it was the amount of things that went into it and she was like i know you're right but it's gonna fuck us like we can't do this in this amount of time it's crazy and we pulled it off and it made such the difference like to feel that like depth and to with his thing being so set design and prop centric it totally made sense for us but that's one of those things is like i gave her something in the 11th hour and she's like yeah well we'll handle it fine we'll make it happen like no one is against being set in the thing they've worked on for three weeks if we need to make if it's going to be better we'll figure it out Yes, respect. There's a level of confidence that you have in your art direction. And one part of that confidence comes with, as you've already mentioned, a great team. When mm -hmm. you can have that confidence and, and know that a vision can be carried out. Um, but we've also had conversations about the amount of creative control that one has when we're doing client work. What's that? What's that balance look like for you knowing that 
you're going to do your best to innovate in a direction for a brand, but at the same time, they may not understand your level of innovation. Um, I think it's just a matter of, it's just what I learned in advertising and agencies, which was like getting them to trust you and, and they're right to be, to worry because from their perspective, they're spending X amount of dollars on a, on a brand video. This is a big one for them. She's the junior client who's been put in charge of this social video. So it's all on her. She's afraid to make decisions. And basically I just start out by warming up. Like we just, we, we kind of come in really safe, really conservative, and then we dial things up. And I try to make it known that like, you guys will have coverage for everything that you'll need if you just want to do the straight recipe video, but I'm going to push my team. We're still going to do it all in one day, but we're going to get you all these extra shots. And I use them for the director's cut, but at least uh, <laughs> they have the option. And in most cases, the client's like, that was incredible. We need more of that on day two. Like, let's start with that day two. And that's, that's always how it happens by the end of the day. It's like, they just need to know that you get what they're trying to do and that you're not going to, even though you're going to strain how it's shot, the core needs are still going to be there. It's going to be an upfront beauty shot. There's going to be a bite and smile. There's going to be all these things, but we're going to do them in a way that's not familiar and not so expected. That warm-up method is such a good people skill. Oh. You know, whether you're working with a client or you're just meeting someone has nothing to do with business at all is, I'm still trying to learn that too, is you want to be creative for someone and you want to do the best yeah. possible work, but it's not always the best possible tactic to start off with, hey, we're going to do some crazy shit. Like, yeah. No, hey, we're going to do what, what you, right. what's comfortable. Yeah. And then as they earn your trust, even if that's in the course of a couple hours, if that first line of defense is, hey, welcome to the set today. We're going to do some great shit for you. Yeah. It's going to be really simple. Yep. It's going to be super easy. You ever need anything, just hit me up. And then in hour two, you're tying the camera to the ceiling fan. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Damn, that's, that's a good rig idea. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but yeah, that's a really good skill that a lot of us just don't have, frankly. Like, Because you were so excited and it's not coming from a bad place. Again, That, you... that unbridled excitement and creativity is always good. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm, and I don't want to lose that. Like, I'm still in my, like, first few years of directing, but I show up to every set, like, jazz, pumped, ready to go. Um, and I think that that enthusiasm is a great thing. And there are brands where it makes sense to come in and say that. Like, if you went into a Lurpak pitch and you went in really conservative, you're not going to win that pitch. Mm. Lurpak, um, for anyone yeah, who doesn't is know, is it's, it's a butter, it's a UK butter brand. And if you look up Lurpak The Odyssey uh, on YouTube, it's my favorite film of food that's ever made. It was a TV commercial. It's incredible. Um, they were doing things like building giant carrots out of paper mache to make things feel big when the carrot comes past camera. It's, it's for a butter brand, but they made cooking visceral. They used sound design. They used cinema. They used Hollywood cameras, and they were the first brand to ever do that. And uh, people have followed suit trying to make that same style, but nothing ever compares to that stuff. And it's the work that I idolize by these two directors, Michael and Philippe, who are the French team, but they're just incredible um i've done a lot of a lot of great work do you have a do you have a goal to direct people in front of the camera and is that something that you're doing oh i know you've done some spots with people yeah. in front of the camera too is that something that you're trying to do more of and that like piques your curiosity it, it is like as much as i love like directing food stylists because that's usually who i'm directing on on tabletop tabletop shoots or food shoots um, I, I did a spot with a guy uh, for Hidden Valley Ranch last year, and he was a funny comedy actor. He was in Deadpool, had a lot of riffing lines, and we just went back and forth all day, just riffing funny lines and, and iterations of that line. 
Um, I just worked with Ali Larder and Bev Mitchell for I Can't Believe It's Not Butter last week, and they were a joy to work with. I love, I mean, I'm a people person. Like, if you're not, a, if you're in directing or the film industry, you kind of have to be, I think. And I just love creating stuff with people on set and, like, vibing with people and, and all that. But it's a whole different game. It's like when you're directing talent, like, you can't just tell it what to do. You have to consider especially if they're a star or if they're kind of a big deal, like you have to consider what their limitations are, what, what they're going to do versus what they won't do. And it's weird. Are they similar in a sense? Is directing people and directing food similar in a sense? Carrots are just as big a diva as (laughs) any celebrity to make them look right, man. It's like, they can't be under the lights for too long. You know, they got to go get retouches every other scene for resets. And well, if you think of an actor and you're directing an actor, they have this built in notoriety, right? Right, There's a built in, essence and familiarity with whoever Mm -hmm. you're working with or there's a lack thereof right if you're working with a new actor there's a lack thereof and so it's kind of the same thing with with food yeah right like if you're working with an oreo cookie people have built-in history with the oreo cookie so if you treat it a certain way whether it's the person at home watching who's eaten oreo cookie for their entire life and be like you fucking ate the cookie that way or you showed it that way i hate you i hate this commercial or they love it or the brand, the person that works at Oreo, who's paying you to direct an Oreo commercial, also has this built-in history and this responsibility to protect the Oreo. Oh, cookie. we don't twist counterclockwise. <laughs> no, we don't. Not on an Oreo set, we don't. You better lick that cream proper. So, are they similar in a sense? Like the way that an actor, you do, if you're working with... You know, when, when something like Oreo, like that's a great example. Because it's so iconic, like it's like when you see... Um, any famous actor, you recognize who that is. You know that that's Rose McGowan, or you know who that is. And with an Oreo, we can be a little more abstract. We can we can show just a little bit of the cookie or in, hint at the thing and not be so, like, beat you over the head with it. Um, and that's what's kind of missing is, like, the film craft for food, and which ironically isn't even my strongest suit. And I, and I, and I know that. That's kind of one of my things. Like, I've always been trying to work on, on a set, I don't touch a camera. Like I have my DPs, I have my, my, my camera operators and everything else. But something I've been really working on is like getting that level of film craft because I've got the concept, but it's like getting that craft to be at the level of a lure pack spot or things like that. And half of that is due to budgets and things like that. But sure. you always, I've never used budgets as an excuse. Like I can't tell you how many jobs I've taken where I've not just not taken a rate because we need to get a better camera. And I know that this better camera will dramatically change the spot um you know and it's it's part of that whole investment thing that we were kind of speaking about early on before this was like you have to put that money in up front or that time in or anything it's got to be something um like no no startup or brand ever gets big without investing in some respect so it's it's a bit similar with the filmmaking stuff i think david now that you have representation you have some notoriety how do you personally decide how much personal projects you need to take on versus how mm-hmm. many commercials you're going to shoot versus whatever else? Because, yeah. um, I mean, the brands that you're, that you're working with, these are not small brands, right? Mm-hmm. Hidden Valley, owned by Clorox. Izzy mentioned the pre-interview working with potentially with McDonald's. Yeah, we're actually flying out on Friday to Milan to do the next uh, European McDonald's spot. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. That's a huge deal. I appreciate that. And again, and you're young too. So which is like that, 
it's just amazing and I'm really stoked to be a part of your media life cycle. But how do you decide that? Because I you know, Eli and I talk about this all the time, is we both worked at agencies. Mm-hmm. We left the agencies to pursue our own thing. And at the end of the day, like we love what we do and we have way more creative and control here. But we're also an agency here. And so at the same time, like that circle kind of gets connected where Mm -hmm. as much as we are the quote unquote entrepreneur, as much as we have have our own creative control, we also still do a ton of commercial work where we have bosses and those bosses are our clients. I'm curious what you how you feel and how you divvy that up. Um, so I'm, I, I love commercials, commercial work, and I love working with brands. I think that that whole challenge of trying to balance the creativity with the, uh, with whatever their brand expectations are, when you can meet that you're a real pro and you're doing your job as a commercial director. And I've kind of said from the beginning that I've always wanted to be a commercial artist. Like I don't care about being in MoMA or like, you know, not working with brands because I'm an artist. Like I, I need to make money and that money is what fuels the projects that that people enjoy or that I'm known for and you can't have one without the other like you guys you got to keep the lights on so you're gonna have to do some branded videos yeah and of course it makes sense because you guys are gonna do it in a way that's authentic to food beast and I'm gonna do as much in my power to make you know this this cooking video feel like David Moss shot it but you can't always control those things and sometimes you're just there to do a job my uh my dp john shafto he told me there's there's a funny thing that he uses it's like real rate or relationship and that's kind of his parameter for picking the jobs that he works on like if two of those three things aren't there it's a very hard sell to like make like if you're not doing it to make a connection or because it's a great paycheck or because it's awesome for your real and there's no money but those out two of those three elements have to be there mm-hmm. that's kind of the approach that i take as well um but you know i i, I love working like I, I love working because it gives me practice. Um, you know, it's my film school. Yeah. Um, and also having a timeline. We we're talking about this yeah. as well. The idea of a lot of artists are just like, I don't like being on a timeline, and I don't like doing this, and there's not enough money in this. And if you're an artist and don't have a timeline, you never create any art. Like nothing ever gets done. So sometimes it's like it's tough. You like you have a week to do something. It's almost a blessing in disguise because if they gave you a week and five or a week and change or a month, Mm -hmm. what changes? Like as an quote unquote artist, you get creative. You get you you find ways to do things. So without that timeline, it's hard to be an artist at all. So folks that just like I want to be an artist, like if you're thinking of a true artist, they're probably broke. And they're probably not putting out any artwork because the timeline is working against them. The idea that it's open-ended is really challenging. So I've kind of welcomed that and found this weird embrace with it. Yeah. So the the timeline is great because it's basically lighting a fire under your your ass to go. And I think a lot of people are paralyzed by the, 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 it's, it's intimidating to make something, especially when you haven't made something before. I was scared shitless when we made Jeff's table. Like, I've never directed anything before. This is going to be interesting. I did super hands, but it was like me and my friends. And now suddenly we're at the Food Beast studio and we, I've got David Rowe shooting as my DP and yeah. we've got a gaffer and all this stuff. And there was only four of us, but it was still like, I don't know, each time like you, you do those things, it's, I don't know where I was going do with that. Do you still get the jitters? Like when you're on set, like going, that's interesting. You mentioned like, I was yeah. nervous going in. Like what, what goes through your mind actually, going on a set? 
first year I did. Yeah. And second and third year, as I started to find my team, that all went away. Um, and the thing I realized was I have the best people in every department. I just need to let them do their jobs and everything's going to be fine. Mm. The work always comes out in the end. We'll find a way to do it. We'll, if you have to shoot till three in the morning, we'll do it. There's going to be overtime. But, you know, the when you surround, like, just for example, on this last shoot for Inception, we had a scene, like, where we're mimicking the Parisian uh, street scene where everything blows up. And it's kind of like, like the boxes explode, right? So we were going to do this with spice ramekins on the kitchen table. The, the sink explodes. I mean, I'll show you guys this on my phone. It's, it's wild. But I hired the pyrotechnics team who did the Avengers movies. I said what? to them, I was like, look, I have no money to pay you guys. Um, they, they were based in New York. And I was like, I have this rad film idea. I love your work and I need pros. And they came in, they did it at a discounted rate. We made it work. And we had the guys who made the explosions in Grand Central Station for the Avengers. <laughs> and to have, when you're surrounded by le- professionals like that, there's not a care in the world because you know these are the absolute best people that do what they do and they're going to come in and rock their shit and then they're going to leave. And I'm just there to say action. <laughs> like roll camera. <laughs> like, um, But yeah, that's what I'm talking about is like it's so important to find your A-team because you can be so paralyzed when it's yourself and you think that you're going into this alone but um, you'd be amazed like what kind of people come out to help you when you have a great idea. But what, but what level, real quick, Izzy, sorry, but what level of salesmanship on your side does it require? A for, lot. I would imagine it's a lot, a lot. Yeah. Because as much as that's a super beautiful moment that you have the Avengers pyrotechnics team for your shoot, mm-hmm. I imagine they get that request all the time. All, always all always of, getting hit up. Always getting hit up for kind of discounted rates. Like, what's your strategy when you're trying to make what the seemingly impossible possible i've uh i've had this discussion with a producer friend of mine and he's always said like you shouldn't be calling gaffers to work on your sets with discounted rates he's like it makes you look really you know not a big time director and i'm like i'm not a big time director i'm just trying to make make stuff and if he sees that i'm invested in him enough to call him and treat him with enough respect to ask him what his rate is and then say like this is what i'm working with i know it's not what you're worth but i promise you if you do this job for me, I will, and you do well, we will work on commercial sets together. And, you know, John Shafto, my DP from the first season of Food Films, he shot for free. And now we're going to McDonald's to do a global spot together. And, like, that kind of thing is just, like, that loyalty, like, doesn't go away. And it's it's really important to have. And going back to the making thing about deadlines, like, you feel so much more confident when you have people who are like, yeah, let's do that. And they're not yes men. They're, like, people who really believe in the stuff. And they're yeah, I'm willing to invest 20 hours of my time for nothing to make that happen. Um, and that's like, then that's really cool. It's funny that you're running into all this film school mentality because that is a lot of film school. Aura. Is it? okay, it's like yeah. a bunch of people that like all, they're in this school because they want to mm-hmm. create something. They either want to write it, they want to direct it, whatever. Yep. And that's like the first, like, I mean that for some people it's like the 10 years after film school is still just, yo, can you do this with me? Like yeah. you were like, this is, I'm excited for this. So it's a lot of salesmanship and the people who don't get a lot of stuff done don't really have that tick in them. That, ex- yeah. that ability to explain why you should be working on this project right. or you're an asshole. No one wanted to work with you, but like, there's always that method. So it's funny that you got all of that without even going to film school, but that agency makeup seemed to seem to help a lot. And Jeff knows the million dollar line. It's a million dollar idea. You gotta make it. That's usually what I. That's usually what I lead in with. Hey David, uh, yes, producer is he here? I just wanted to ask: Did it feel different working with like a duel that worked on the Avengers? Did you learn things from them? Like, what was it like working with them? Did it feel a little different from other projects that you'd done? 
Um, no, I think it's, uh, I felt a little more confident in their abilities because I had seen their work before. But even then, like, two of the charges didn't go off in the thing. So we had two live charges that didn't, like, the, the planter was exploded and the, the wine glass was supposed to explode and they didn't. So we had to do another take and now it's going to cost me $2,000 to roto those things out in India. And that's just the nature of how things go. Like, even with pros, like, shit will get fucked up. Things will not work on set. The, the actor will be weird. I had a hand model who just had the shakes the whole time. And I was like, oh, you just need to eat a banana real quick. And she did. And she's like, oh, my God, that fixed it. It was just like she had low blood sugar. It was like a mm. thing. But, like, you know, th- there's all these weird things that happen on food shoots that ne- nothing ever goes to plan. And suddenly you're like, well, we got to figure out what's our option B, option C. And you got to be able to delineate that those orders with confidence and assurance that this is going to be even better than what we <laughs> planned out to do. And, and often cases it is. It ends up being cooler. Um, I mean, we never knew we were going to put chocolate on the strawberry. We were just going to spin it on the thing like a dreidel. And then... I was like, we should put, let's just see what happens. This centrifugal force from sixth grade science class is coming in <laughs> handy right now. So the shot you're talking about is your upcoming food film for yeah, Inception yeah. and that iconic totem spinning mm-hmm. shot to, got replaced with a strawberry being spun, but there's chocolate around it and it takes you a second for it to register. We just showed the trailer on our Twitch stream, but what we're going to do is we'll show you guys it, we'll show you guys it after, but so you did not storyboard that strawberry with chocolate before the set? I, I in my in the back of my mind I was like we're going to put water on it, we're going to put chocolate on it. Like I knew See I was going to try that shit, but I didn't want to freak everybody out up front cuz everyone's already overwhelmed enough. I'm like I need you to make a blender rotate while the camera rotates counterclockwise <laughs> to replicate the hallway scene. We're going to have a carrot <laughs> fall into a sink in slow motion just like the kick scene with Leo falling into the tub and I need the sink to be an exact porcelain replica curvature exactly of the tub. Make the windows, the lighting exactly the same, dirty up the windows and it's going to fall and break at exactly the same frame rate as we did shot for shot with, with Christopher Nolan's film. And that alone is just people's heads explode so it's once again it's like clients like we can't overwhelm everybody right now because everyone's just gonna leave i mean fuck this i'm not i'm out good luck david but the strawberry spinning is where you drew the line yeah i was like all right that's it that's it i'm I'm trying to make them defy gravity so let's just handle that one first and then we'll go to the next thing so then when you were like yo we got to make this strawberry spin did someone drill a hole in the table and then you know that that idea came it wasn't even from my rigs guy it was from our phantom technician so chris v who is uh, my homie from portland he, he owns a phantom I brought him out to do a commercial gig with me. We met through Instagram, just DM'd one day. And I was like, hey, I got this cool phantom shoot coming up. I want to work with you. He came out. And then after I told him about food films. I was like, yo, man, I, I really brought you out here because I want you on food films. And, that, and that's like the really fun shit. And he's like, I've already seen them. Like, hell yeah, I'm down. And he flew out with his, with his wife, Sarah, super sweet. We spent two days. We like went out to dinner. We shot. We had a great time. We flew back. And... But Chris was the one, I was like, man, I want to do this shot with the strawberry. It's got to be like the totem. I was like, I was thinking about hollowing out the strawberry. Then we'll put an actual uh, top inside and then we'll spin that and we'll have it suspended on an access point from fishing line. And he's like, why don't we just drill up through the table with a drill? He's like, you don't care about the table, right? I'm like, I don't give a fuck about the table. So he's like, so then 10 minutes later, he sends me a video and he's done it at his own table, drilled through the oh, thing shit. with the strawberries. Like, I think it works. And I'm like, all right, dude, you're hired. You are. I'm, I'm like, let me book your ticket right now. And that's what I love is like the people on my cruise, they don't segment to just their departments. They all do their departments extremely well. But 
Um, we used to say in the agency, like good ideas can come from anybody, anywhere. That's not always true. But when people are like-minded thinking and they're all clear on what the end objective is, the the beginning and inklings of an idea can come from somebody whose department wasn't in that. And as a director, you need to be in tune to listen to those departments enough to take what you can get from it, but not let it inform and sway your thinking overall. Because you have so many people in your ear from clients who are saying, we need it this way for the client. Then we have the producer saying, we don't have enough money to do what you want to do. And then you've got your crew who's like, you know, just trying to make this, the shot happen. There's all these things that are rolling around and, um, to be calm and collected at that, at the helm of the ship is something I've had since the beginning. And I've been lucky just to be able to let stuff roll off, um, and just kind of be very clear and articulate in what we want. And being clear is the the biggest thing I think. And you know, that as a boss, yeah. so just being clear. Yeah. You can't sway there. Yeah. I have, I have one question before we wrap and this is something that kind of stays on my mind a lot. And I'm curious about, again, I feel like, I'm sitting with two pioneers in media, so it's a good question to ask. Do you think this next generation can be patient enough to allow a media to evolve? And the reason why I ask that is because the question that I hear a lot in both traditional and digital media circles is, who's going to be the replacement for Bourdain? Who's going to be the replacement for Jay Gold, et cetera, et cetera? Those guys both had decades upon decades of careers to kind of build a brand that was then leveraged across TV networks and newspapers and things that had kind of crazy amount of concentrated clout at that time. We're now, I think, in an era where even if the three of us thought of the best food narrative film in the history of food narrative films if it doesn't have something that appeals to someone in the first two seconds, as you called it, David, then we may not even get viewership on that thing at all. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you guys feel about that and your confidence level of being able to kind of both meet the audience where they're at, but also innovate in a time that makes you comfortable with your own content? I feel good. Here's why I feel good. I think that question is good about who's going to be the next Bourdain, who's going to be the next Jay Gold. Those dudes left such a lasting impression that no one should try to emulate them. They also rose to prominence at a time when we needed them the most. They were doing, they were telling us where to eat and how to eat and what we should eat before Yelp was doing it. So they were the OG influencers. I mean, like they didn't, you know, there was no social media, but it was just like people respected them in that way. So thinking of how we consume food and how we receive information about it. There are now more democratized voices. There are food beasts, tastemates of the world, your insiders that are pushing you. Here's where you should eat. Here's something that looks cool. Here's something big. Enjoy it. That's on to the next. That's on to the next. I think we're covered there. Why I'm really excited is this is now the time to talk about food an entirely new way that hasn't been talked about before. So because they're, who's going to be the next Pixar director who can tell a good food story? Who's going to create a new format for food that we haven't seen before? And those can live outside of the confines of the first three or five seconds you see of a Facebook video. Mm -hmm. 
people will still come to a really good idea. People will still go to a really good film. It's a matter of who's going to write that next story. And the idea of fiction and what's so brilliant about it is that it doesn't necessarily have to follow the same tropes and fight the same fight that newspapers fight, that media companies fight in that sense. So, like, who was J.K. Rowling before J.K. Rowling was J.K. Rowling? Hmm. You know, who, you know, was whoever wrote fucking Game of Thrones and before Game of Thrones? George Martin. Yeah, like, so I do think just a really good story. We just, we're not currently incentivized and no one knows, like, who to talk to about that stuff with but if we just think of food stories as just other stories as an action film as a horror film as something else i think we open up this opportunity and relieve some of that pressure of having to distribute food the way we think if food network hasn't picked up a narrative food show then fuck food network don't run it on food network don't run it on. it's got to be on nbc or it's got to be something else yeah someone else someone else will pick it up they've had 50 years to try it and they haven't so They might know something that we don't. Maybe people don't want to watch it. Maybe they're afraid to invest in it. But the way that YouTubers are fearless and that, and, and the way that folks like David Ma are fearless and that, you know what? I have five grand. I'm going to put my idea to paper and then I'm going to be crafty in how I get my message out. And if the story is good enough, which they are through food films, through Jeff's Table, through all these concepts, they will get out there. We're in an age where it is easier than ever to put an idea out there. They just have to be good. They have to be real and they have to be entertaining. So we're of a Venn diagram of shit that we're working on. We've crossed some good bridges and those circles are good right now. We just need to stop thinking like we need to find a good host who can host a show. Find a good writer who can write this show. It's just a matter of like putting really good ideas out there and being less afraid of it. Can I, can I piggyback off your Venn diagram thing Please. that you're talking about? Because I think that's probably the most important thing. And if I can give like a piece of advice to creators right now is don't just create with people in your category, mm. in your genre, in your specialty. Um, I hired John Shafto, my DP, who I mentioned earlier, like he shoots Adidas commercials. He shoots music videos. And those things are great because I don't hire food DPs. I hire people who shoot narratives who shoot action sports because the way we flew a guy in from France who shoots Ferraris for this commercial because we wanted to make it look like the way he shoots the curvature of cars and the way he would shoot this bottle was going to be so cool for him to apply that to this and that's that's the way that we've been able to create is you find somebody who does something so well in a completely unrelated category or just perfectly related and they bring their level of expertise but as the food expert you're reining them in so we can't just stay within our food creators. I think that's that's my main takeaway is like work with people in fashion, work with people in music and try to come up with something better than just like music and food or whatever. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like get past the first thought stuff and dig into rich territory. Like when you take the nuances of music and apply that to food, then you're onto something interesting. Yeah. When you find a way to find those people who are who scare you because you're like, I don't know what they do, right. but I'm really fascinated by it. And if you think of some of our biggest peaks... Like yeah. even at Food Beast. Sure. It's not the food content itself that breaks and makes noise. It's the combination 
of food and technology and our dream machines, right? Right. Like it's the combination of food and people in real life to create food festivals that people come to. But if we just thought about the lens of we're going to make a cooking show, we really can't find someone funny enough or talented enough on the chef front that's going to differentiate you and make enough noise. Like there are right. extremely talented chefs, but why I find fun in Food Beast is we don't collaborate just with chefs. What makes First We Feast so great is they have shows that are hosted by rappers. Like so those like that's yeah. that's what's fun. Yeah. Hot Ones is just a show about spicy food but really it's an interview show like right what there was right. no food interview show before right right, right? like it, but it's entirely it through the lens of food was just the wings to get you started so the people that are going to make the most progression are not just thinking about food it's where do other industries that you're generally interested in and other people have mm-hmm. interest in where are those going to collide and i think that's where a lot of great ideas are going to come mic drop Mic drop. It smells so good in here. I think that might be a good time to. It smells like garlic or something. <laughs> Hold up. Oh, Jesus God. Christ. It smells so good. David, thank you for coming on, man. Oh, guys, thanks for having me. I mean, I when I when you first asked me to come on, I was like, this is a no brainer. I mean, we you guys were the first ones I ever worked with, and it's uh, I learned so much from from Food Beast, and you guys gave me a chance at the to be a director. It was awesome. That's cool, man. Uh, Got a lo- lot of love for you guys. Honestly. Likewise. likewise, likewise, David. Uh, for those who are listening, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, hashtag food films in your review. Yeah. And be on the lookout for David Ma's new season of food films. Uh, we're going to tease the trailer across our platforms in, in, the, coming, in the coming weeks. So uh, stay tuned for that. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for tuning in on Twitch. And until next week, y'all, go follow David. Ma on everything. I think he's at double at David W Ma everywhere. M A guys, go find him. Peace. <laughs>